And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. As it becomes, I guess you're in the autumn of the year in Perth. We are. We're in fact enduring or enjoying a, a slight... Indian summer, where a few day, for a few days it's got warm again, but hopefully, you know, it looks cloudy and overcast today. So hopefully, some long, happy, rainy, cold days are on our way, so that I can focus on my reading and editing. Because I have an, oh, I've got, dude, I've got taxes to do. I haven't done last year's taxes yet. Oh, yeah. uh, we, no, we, we're in different tax years, so it's, you know, uh, so you have to remember that. But I've got to get that done rather urgently. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, I mean, I'm coming to the end of a cycle on a project, a book called Edge of Infinity which is a hard science fiction anthology that I'm doing for Solaris. And the stories are finally sort of falling in through the mailbox. You know, because you should say, don't forget us, don't forget us. And they're going, yep, yep, you want it by the deadline, no worries. And so just now, like this morning, I got a story in from Steve Baxter, and the other day I got a story in from somebody else. And they're all bopping in or saying, yes, you'll have it in a few days, because the deadline's the 1st of June. Uh Uh, And I've got to get the book in, I think, by the first week of July, which is usually enough time. But I have to say, I also have to. Um, I gave myself ten days in Melbourne uh, at around that time, so it's going to mm-hmm. be interesting making sure I get that delivered as well. And actually, this is why one of the reasons I've been vacillating about committing to Toronto or Chicago, which drives everybody mad. And if mm-hmm. Elizabeth Stein ever listens to this podcast, she will now roll her eyes and possibly even turn this off. Is that? Going to Toronto is exactly the wrong time for my work year as well. It's like, I should be finishing Edge of Infinity, so I'm going to go to Melbourne. I'm going to, I should be finishing the best of the year, Volume 7, so I'll go to Toronto. Because it's due like three weeks after I get back from Toronto if I go. So it's just like rotten timing. And that that seems to be the, the theme for that kind of thing, unfortunately. So busy, busy, busy. But that's true for you too, yeah? Well, it is, and not the same way. I, I, I do. I'm the same way you are, though. I look forward to having bad weather. I mean, we're in we're in April. We should be in spring here, and it's been lovely. But I'm at the end of my semester. I have 25 thesis papers to read, and it's supposed to be rainy and cold and <laughs> that's great because the last thing I want is having that kind of work in front of me with a beautiful day outside. Yes, exactly. Uh, so I've got a few things to do, and then I'll have uh, I'll, I'll be on to my summer projects where I. Probably will be uh, going to the let me see the Locus Awards to ReaderCon in July, uh, possibly a day or so at WISCON, and then eventually ending up the summer with WorldCon here in Chicago, which yep. is going to be as chaotic as anything. Now you're going to Melbourne because of uh, is it Continuum? Yeah, for, uh, for, for the NatCon and because Marianne felt sorry for me and said I should have some time off because I was too stressed. Okay, that's good, and <laughs> nothing. Nothing reduces your stress like going to a science fiction convention. Well, well, in, in fairness, before we go to the point where you're going to, I mean, the reason I'm actually going, uh, mm-hmm. the convention is o- was only ever incidental to my plan. Sorry, lovely continuum people, but it uh-huh. really only ever was. What I'm actually going to do is go and spend three, four days down um, in the country at Jack and Janine, uh, Jack, Dan and Janine Webb's house, uh, relaxing and taking it easy. That's what I'm actually doing. That sounds great. Uh, so and they have this lovely place apparently down in a place called Foster on the Great Ocean Road, which is a a, mm-hmm. a, tour, you know, well, a real te- tourist destination for uh, Australia. It's supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be peaceful. So I'm going to go down like like I fly into Melbourne. Jack's going to pick me at the aer- airport. We're going to drive down to the country together. I'm going to spend like three days there, just kicking back, relaxing, taking it easy. Going to come back up to up to Melbourne. Going to see a few friends. Then do the convention thing. Come home. That sounds like an enviable uh, weekend, but um, I got a question. You were mentioning another hard SF anthology. I know you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Are you doing your usual trick of getting some people who don't normally write hard SF to try to come up with something? Not so much for this book. Uh, This book really, I think, was or is a closer to a heart of the genre kind of a book, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. No, there are some newer, younger writers in there. So like Arne Oamayel has got me, give, you know, given me a story. Right. But, but the kind of people who are like, you know, Bruce Sterling, uh, Daniel Abraham as James Corey. Well, Dan- Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank as James Corey. Uh-huh. Uh, Reynolds, Gwyneth Jones, Paul McCauley, Peter Watts, Hanu, those kind of people. They're exactly who you'd expect. It, it, it's very much a companion volume on a somewhat different theme. It's not just straight hard SF. Uh to um, en- yeah, engineering and engineering, yeah, very yeah. Much. 
Uh, I mean, the basic idea behind this actually grew out of my reading of James Corey's Leviathan Wakes, which is mm-hmm. a you know a midterm you know far future science fiction novel set within our solar system, and, and I guess the governing restriction on it is that there's no, there's nothing outside of the solar system. It's pre-star flight. So I said to people, write me a bunch of stories set in a pre-star flight industrialized solar system. You know, a great example of this, actually, to, to show how much you can vary it, is Stan Robinson's 2312, which is exactly... I was going to say the very same thing. Yeah. Um, and it's something we've noticed before. I mean, you've... I mean, not only with your Martian anthology, but with a lot of other things in the Blue Remembered Earth, mm. there is uh, the, the Paul Macaulay uh, Quiet War stories. There seems to be, that seems to be, to me, the most recent visible trend in hard SF is, and I see it somewhere as a compromise between uh, far-flung space operas and mundane SF. Mm-hmm. We're not going to come all the way back to being mundane, but we're going to keep it within the solar system and keeping it within a kind of engineering level of possibility. Um, yeah, I think and I so. Wonder if that's con- I wonder if that's connected also, we can get to this in a second, into that whole hieroglyph project that uh, that Neil Stevenson and others are working on, of trying to you know, return science fiction to the doable. Yeah. I, it may be. I think also, I mean, what I've noticed is sometimes restrictions, whether they're arbitrary or not, just give a writer um, the boundaries to, to form their story against. And the fact that you're saying, you know, we have to be out in the solar system, but not out in the universe at large, or just before we go to the universe at large, gives it a kind of shape and form and consistency. I know a number of the people I was talking to were worried that I wanted to do a theme anthology. I'm like, no, 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 no. It doesn't have to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, just just this one thing. And I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right to name some of the things. And also stuff like uh, Paul McCauley's Quiet War books are another example. It's very much a thing. Right now, it's like, we don't quite believe we're going to get outside of the solar system, which is, you know, a small solar, a small galactic space, but an enormous physical space. Right. And, you know, I mean, humanity may never meaningfully leave the solar system, but we can look to sort of get to the moon, get to the um, asteroid belt, do this here, do that there, particularly as we perhaps speed up transport, improve our technology to protect ourselves. Or at least we can imagine it as being believable. Whether or not it can ever really happen, I don't know. But certainly, um, it's it's conceptually achievable. And I think that's what makes the fiction work. Well, I think the uh, the fact that we can understand the engineering behind that kind of fiction, that's one way of defining hard... That's one way, I suppose, of drawing a line between hard SF and space opera, mm-hmm. is that hard SF, we can, we can follow a path, we can connect the dots between here and whatever engineering... Uh, accomplishments are out there, uh, whether or not they're ever practical, because the engineering is is partly the point. You mentioned Stan Robinson, for example, and twenty three twelve, um, which I would recommend to people who want the old grand tour of the solar system. This is what we mm-hmm. can do, because yeah. you know, as as a, as a as a travelogue, it's wonderful. Now he one of the things he has invented for that or thought out, and he and, and Stan thinks out things in great detail is a moving city on Mercury, the term- oh, city of Terminator. Yeah. Because, yeah, you have to stay ahead of the line of the Terminator or you're going to be fried. Um, now, that is probably never going to happen on Mercury, but the idea of building a city on rails is an engineering problem which he's sort of worked through, and that's a fascinating concept by itself. It's also it's interesting you mentioned that particular moment and that particular opening because I was thinking about that this morning just before we started podcasting mm-hmm. and how... At least to, for me, as an opener to that book, it's a quintessentially science fictional thrill when you read that. You know, mm-hmm. Because you open the book and you immediately dislocate from our world and it gives you this amazing feeling of wonder that, oh, look at this thing you could do. You know, someone that has actually built you know, rails that, circumnav- you know, that, that circle an entire planet, right. which, which is on one hand an insane thing to do build a city on those rails, base its propulsion on the expansion and contraction of the rails in the heat of the sun, and all this sort of thing. It's fantastic. And I mean, whether it's at all practical, or whether you would ever mm. do such a thing, it's not the point. It's just an enormous sense of wonder, gosh, wow, thrill, when you read it. And that really starts off that whole book, and synopsizes nicely, I think, a lot of the thrill and excitement of hard science fiction, of science fiction. Yeah, he does that again and again in that novel, and other people have done it as well, where where you just think there's a, there's some scenes of essentially windsurfing the rings of Saturn, 
which is another bizarre idea. But once you work it out, it's just uh, it, it, it's, the, the novel has one thrill after another like that. Mm. Paul McCauley is able to do that on a fairly regular basis. And I think part of the sense of wonder achieved by that sort of thing is that as bizarre and unlikely as this is, we can understand how it could happen. We understand the principle of rails. We understand yeah. the idea of actually moving cities are not a new idea at all. No. Uh, but, but the fact that it's, it's astonishing and uh, understandable at the same time, whereas yes. some of the huge galactic star-smashing things, uh, uh, when you get into, oh, let's say some of the largest hard SF concepts out there would be something like Stephen Baxter's uh, the Great Attractor, you know, in his in his galactic novels, mm -hmm. uh, where you have people throwing around galaxies and that sort of thing. That's almost a fantasy concept. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind of technology we can't imagine. We don't know. That's the old Arthur Clarke thing. It might as well be magic. But when you're reading something that's conceived in terms of hard SF, and I'd almost I'd almost want to exchange the term engineering SF for hard. Yeah, SF, I understand. It's about, it's about building things that we can understand how they could be built. Well, it's because that's the extrapolation. One thing that some people particularly, and we may touch on this, the older strain of reading, Gary, uh, mm. people with fondness for the science fiction of the 40s and 50s particularly, I think, would tell you that what's you know, missing is the sort of thrill that you used to get to it. And that was a technological thrill. You know, mm -hmm. it was that you, know, you were de coming up with engineering solutions to problems that were imaginable. It's the same in a strange kind of a way, I think, it's the same kind of attraction that you get from steampunk. Because you can understand it, you can conceive it, it all, you know, it's, it's a clockwork world, and clockwork is logical, if you know what I mean. Whereas, when you go to that part of hard science fiction that starts with anything to do with quantum, mm -hmm. it all become, becomes very much like magic, as has been said terribly often before. And you begin to move into very I mean, strange and intriguing places, but it's a very different kind of a thrill, a very different kind of a reader interaction response. And so I think with um, this kind of stuff we're talking about, the, the, that, mm -hmm. uh, the, the stuff like Leviathan Wakes by uh, you know, James Corey, um, you, you can see that kind, you know, that sort of thrill. And I think that's why that book's back is on the Hugo ballot, frankly, because I think readers, you know, science fiction readers have gone, whether it's a brilliant or a completely accomplished book, I think mm -hmm. readers are going, oh my gosh, that's what I want. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. And um, so that's why you see it. Um, I, well, I mean, partly, and that's why I go back to the term engineering, is that there's a, um, there's a kind of hard science fiction, and one of the problems, as we've talked about before, is the hard science fiction changes its definition as the notion of hard science changes oh. its definition. You know, back in the early 50s, for example, uh, okay, as long as we're going to sound like really old people, you look at the opening scene of um, Childhood's End. Yeah. Not Childhood's End? No, not Childhood's End. I'm sorry, The City and the Stars. Yeah. Or against the fall of night, but basically Alvin of Diaspar is involved in uh, a space battle, which turns out to be a virtual reality experience. Yes. The term wasn't being used, but that's exactly what he was talking about. Now, from a point of view of information technology, um, as we see it now, that's hard SF. That's simply extrapolating what we already do with computer games. Yeah. Uh, since we weren't doing that in 1952 or 1947 when he wrote the first draft of that, um, that was just completely off the wall. Yeah. shooting in the dark, it, you know, it wasn't even extrapolation from anything. Yeah. We look at a scene like that today, we look at all the cyberspace stuff, we go back to uh, ever since Neuromancer, a scene like that is seen as a subset of a certain kind of hard science fiction associated with cyberpunk. Mm -hmm. um, but the engineering, the stuff that's been consistent since the beginning of since Jules Verne down to now is, well, we can understand how rockets work, we can understand how orbits work, we can understand how uh, survival mechanisms such as uh, space pods and spacesuits work. Um, that's been a consistent thread in hard science fiction, but essentially that's always been engineering. Yeah, yeah. That's true. So what else uh, occurred to me, just as a, as a parallel, and it has to do with the state of the field. Everybody has views of how, what a field uh, is like and what it's about, and they make they respond very emotionally to awards, ballots, announcements, and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting, and it's great to see passion. Here's an interesting thing. Leviathan Wakes by Corey makes the Hugo Ballot, right? Mm -hmm. It is a 21st century version of old hard science fiction. Published the same year, John Scalzi's Fuzzy Book uh -huh. doesn't make the Hugo Ballot. 
um, and do, you know, does not seem to. And it's it, it's a much more directly old-fashioned book. And I wonder. If, I mean, and, he's very, and, and, and this no, the reason I'm about to make the observation I'm going to make is because Scalzi is an award Hugo Award-winning writer with an enormously high profile. Everybody who has read who's nominated for the Hugos is aware of his book and has probably read it or is able to oh. read it. Yes. Now, what's interesting is that overtly old-fashioned um, book, even though it's a reboot with a newer take, but an old-fashioned book, yeah. hasn't appealed to the readership enough to get it onto the ballot. And that suggests to me the, that, that however slowly the votership, or, you know, the audience of the field, is looking more forward than back. Exactly. I think that... Um one of the things, when you talk about all the people who are aware of Scalzi's novel, I don't know how many, I don't know what proportion of that readership knows anything about H. Beam Piper, mm. uh, for example. So, in, in a sense, and Scalzi is also somebody who's very knowledgeable about the history of the field. He's very respectful of the history of the field, oh, yes. and he's he's recreating something that meant a lot to him as a young reader, I suppose. Uh, but looking back to earlier hard science fiction is not, I think, what most hard science fiction readers of today, especially the ones, let's say, under the age of 30, are looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, don't, they don't really know a lot. I'm, I'm assuming this now, but, uh, and I assume this based on having talked to a lot of people who begin reading science fiction, and then after they've been reading it four or five years, start reading backwards into the history of the field. Yeah. Um, but when they pick up something like a Scalzi novel, and no, they're not thinking about uh, Piper. They're not thinking about Heinlein. They're not thinking about old Arthur C. Clarke. They're thinking about what is new. In other words, where does hard science fiction go from here? Mm. And we've got, you know, we've got at least we've got at least seventy or eighty years of a tradition of hard, identifiable tradition of hard science fiction that you can look back to. And I don't think people really want to do that. I don't think people want to see James Blish's Cities in Flight rebooted. Um, but they might like some new concept of urbanism in outer space. Uh, yes, I, I think there's some truth to that. And you know, this all. So yeah, I, I think that in. That in itself is interesting, and it'll be interesting when the not the locus poll, uh, you know, awards ballot comes out, but when the locus poll comes out, and we can see just how much awareness some of these books that we talk about are getting. You know, how mm -hmm. far down? I mean, like if you have fifty or sixty books nominated for uh, in a um, in a year, and you know, the the, the book of the day comes in at fifty ninth. It suggests that it's not you know, got a lot of traction with the readership, and I realize that the Locus Awards are not the only um, poll, and I realize that the Hugo Awards are not the only meaningful poll, and I realize they all have their own audiences. But nonetheless, they're the little barometers that we have, you know. And it's interesting because, as well, just quickly, if you, mm -hmm. to go back to the Hugo ballot, we've got somewhere else to go at some point, but a lot of the rest of that Hugo ballot is much younger and much more forward-looking as well. Mm -hmm. So you know. That's what I, I think that's true, and I think, um, well, the same thing's true with the Nebula ballot, which is, interestingly enough, very congruent with the Hugo ballot, except in the novel category. Yes. Because I think you're right. I think the short fiction is, uh, is, is, is much more contemporary, if you will, than, than, than the novels. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wonder also if, if uh, something I've often wondered, one of the things they say in Hollywood about movies is that, you know, a movie released in... January of the previous year will have been forgotten, whereas a movie released in... So they have tried to get these big movie releases in December to get them qualified for the ballots. Um, do you think that happens in science fiction? I mean, one of the things that seems to be getting um, a lot of respect and nominations is, among others, Joe Walton's novel, which came out, I think, in January of last year. That's correct. Uh, in so fact, that's, it's, it's, that's had some legs. That's stuck around for quite a while now. Well, I, I think that's true, but I think there's a couple of things that are at play, and I, I, I could be wrong. But the first thing is the idea has to have traction with the community enough to hold, and that mm -hmm. book is a book that a lot of people or enough people have championed to you know, keep in, you know, to the forefront of mm -hmm. everybody's attention. Uh, I mean, it's a very good book. It's one I like very much. Some people don't like it as much, whatever, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, I think people, it's, it's one of those ones that maybe were flagged in their minds. I mean, I, I remember reading the book the first time and thinking, this is the kind of book that's going to get overlooked later on. We have to keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, whereas you sort of feel like A Dance with Dragons is, 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 is going to do okay, right? Um, 
But the sort of book I think that really is at risk of being forgotten is the book that appears very late in the year or early in the year in a different publishing uh, area. You know, like, let, let's, okay, let's take an example. The, the Islanders by Chris Priest is the kind mm. of book that will get overlooked for these awards because it's published in the UK, not in the US. There's different, you know, the, the eligibility gets a little bit um, complicated. Not terribly. I mean, not enough that we need to get emails explaining it all to us because we do know. But, you know, that thing like, well, okay, that book is published on the cusp of the year. Does that belong here? Does it belong there? Is it eligible? Are we even aware of it? Did we see it? You know, my guess oh. is that, you know, one of the reasons the Islanders will show up only on juried awards this year is because almost nobody in the United States saw the book because it hasn't been published there. You know, so there's that yeah. kind of thing. So. Well, yeah, I, th I think that's true. And the, the book I was concerned about last year, and I remember liking this book while well, you saw my review of it, and it seems to have disappeared utterly after that, was Lavi Tidar's Osama, yeah. uh, which was a very inventive book in a strange way, uh, inventive in the same way as Paul Park's Princess of Romania, the notion that, well, maybe our whole world is in somebody else's text. Um, and that was one of the that was one of the novels that became part of the debate uh, uh, over the um, Clark Award finalists. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that uh, when when Christopher Priest to speak to mention his name again, I think he was a little bit outraged that here was a young writer trying something new from a different part of the world, having a different sensibility, um, ended up writing a very entertaining novel, and yet by and large, as I understand uh, Priest's complaint, the um, the, the Clark Award finalists tended to go back to the conservative uh, notions of what science fiction had been before. I think that's true. I think sometimes as well, um, awards juries can get themselves, and I've got no idea if this happened here, uh, they can get themselves tied up with what's expected of them a little bit. You know, you start talking about how you're going to draw, you know, draw your fences around everything that comes to you. I mean, I, I can think of a couple of times when I've been fortunate enough to be a judge. And you do. You sit there going, well, does what we're doing fit the award? What message are we looking to send with what we're doing? All yeah. those sorts of things come into play. And yes, it's all about the best. But I mean, as we all know, best is subjective. Best is relative, you know. And so you need to have some benchmarks. And that can really... Um, lead you to a more conservative position potentially. I think. I suppose so. I mean, one of the things because I've been, I've, I'm finishing my second awards jury now, the Shirley Jackson Awards, and going into the next one. Yes, um, congratulations the on that. Awards. Uh, yeah, but and, and the thing that's interesting about that is that yeah, the first thing you're trying to think is what do these awards represent, um, and and with the Shirley Jackson Awards, that's a little bit vague, frankly, because it's not. Yeah. I don't think it's supposed to be another Stoker Award. On the one hand, it's not supposed to be another World Fantasy Award. It's it's, um, and we spent some time talking about that, um, and came up with a list that I, I'm not entirely in agreement with everything on it, but I think it's a respectable list. Um, I don't think that anybody seriously claims that when we're looking at awards, we have found the absolute best novel of the year. Um, we find the representative novel. You find a bunch of very good novels. Um, you must have the same thing when you're doing your year's best. You can't, of course. You can't claim that what is in your book, as opposed to Gardner's book or, or, or Catherine and David's book, that you've got the best stories. You've got a lot of good stories. Of course um, I can. Mine's the best. They don't know what they're talking about. Oh, well, you can say that if you want to. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, okay. You uh, want well, to I mean, talk about your best for a minute? Sure. <laughs> let's, 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 let's. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll come out fighting and say. Hmm. No, I'm not going to come out fighting. I can only go back to what I've always said about this, and that is that, yes, you're right. First of all, it's subjective. Second of all, there are practical considerations. And third of all, you know, I mean, well, the, the, the practical considerations are the big ones. There are stories that I couldn't get from my book. Yeah? Yeah. So, for example, uh, and I'm just going to put it out there, I would have included China Mieville's story from The Guardian last year, Clovehive, mm -hmm. which I liked very much, but I was unable to include it for various contractual reasons, which made me very just unhappy. Um, oh yeah, they're they're all kind. Of, having done this Library of America thing, which I'm yeah. still going, you know, there, there are things that we had, we had length problems with some things. Mm -hmm. We had right problems. We had balance problems. There had the the board had to approve things. Um, but the fact is that at the end, you're coming up with something that at some level reflects your own taste. Uh, it, uh, okay, it reflects my taste. It reflects what I think the field maybe either should be doing or is doing. Mm -hmm. It's what I'm aware of, and you might think that doing what I do that I'm aware of anything, but 
honestly, there are more little corners to hide short stories in now than there have ever been before in the history of the field. And people do oh. hide them in every little corner, and you're suddenly going, what's that? And how didn't I know about this? And, you know, I mean, like I said with the Hugos, there's a Orbit single up there. You know, originally published as a little standalone PDF, uh, EPUB thing. Mm-hmm. And there's more and more of that kind of thing happening. And you're going, okay, well, there's this, there's that, there's this, there's that. Where is everything? How do I keep up with it? I mean, how do I find it? And then how do I read it? And then having read it, how do I meaningfully um, sort it through to build what I think will be a representative book? Because you're right. It's it's if you like a talisman for the year that was than necessarily uh, everything. and also Or a palimpsest rather than talisman. talisman. Uh-huh. Uh, and also it is, it's the stuff that you like the best, you know. I mean, I was gratified to see yesterday they had the Edgar Awards up. And mm. Neil Gaiman's short story, The Case of Death and Honey, was up. Now, I love that right. story enough to open the book with it. Um, I am going to completely uh, plea, you know, agree with anybody who says, it's only at best peripherally genre, and I'm not going to worry about that much. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take a sort of, take a pass on it. Um, that's what happens, you know. Well... But this is this is kind of um, what I'm getting at when I was because I just finished reading Gardeners and, mm-hmm. and Cast, oh, yeah. and I and I've seen the contents of Rich Hortons as well. And one of the things that everybody asks when they see a best of the years anthology, especially when you've built up a reputation of a few years, and by by now everybody doing a, a best of the year anthology has some kind of a track record in that. Mm-hmm. So the first question that a reader would ask, I would think, would be best according to whom. And the question I would ask. In addition to that, which is maybe more important, best for whom? Yes. In other words, who's the readership out there? And, uh, and, and the argument which I've made repeatedly is that no two people are reading, and not only no two anthologists, no two general readers, um, such as myself. Well, okay, I'm a reviewer. Maybe not. But it, when I was just reading, no two people are reading the same field. No. No two people are reading exactly the same sets of novels and stories in a given year. Um, and... The readership, I, that's why I'm, I'm wondering if you can identify the different readerships of science fiction and fantasy, and let's throw horror into the mix as well, um, and figure out that maybe different anthologies address different readerships, and maybe they ought to. Oh, that, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe. I mean, the, the problem is, of course, that everybody's also trying to appeal to the widest audience possible so that their books will be successful and keep going. So that sort of skews it. So you, you know, if I were to say, for example, Hartwell's book might be aimed at the core of the genre more. It's closer to the analog of uh, bests of the year, um, but but nonetheless, it also carries appeal that's broader than that because it needs to. But I would have seen, you know, sort of, yeah, Hartwell's book is for those people who are most interested in continuing the core mission of the field. Uh, I don't. I, I don't think I agree with that. You don't? Why not? Um, I think um, that there there is a core idea of science fiction, but I think that uh, that the Hartwell Kramer book may be the best suited for people who are fairly new science fiction readers uh-huh. who want to know what the core values are, but but they want to read some fairly accessible stories. There are consistently, I think, more humorous stories probably in uh, Hartwell and Kramer yep. than anywhere else. There are probably more stories that I would not agree are the year's best stories, but they're all entertaining and they're almost all accessible. Okay, yeah. I think I think the person who is really uh, preserving the core of the field in that sense, the veteran readers, uh, will appreciate Gardner's anthology. Okay. Uh, it's fairly sophisticated science fiction. Uh, there are a few uh, what I would call entry-level stories in it. There are a lot of stories that are going to be extremely confusing for my undergraduate students who are just starting to read science fiction. <laughs> yeah. And I think the advantage that you and I think Rich both have is that you can include fantasy as well, so there's a range, there's a potential range of readers from uh, the entry-level readers that Hartwell and Kramer sure. are going after, the veteran readers that Gardner is going after, and the people who would read a year's best fantasy fiction. Yeah. So I'm- to some extent, when you combine science fiction and fantasy into one year's best, you're making an implicit argument that these genres are permeable. They're not as quietly, quite, as quite easily separated as they might have been 20 or 30 years ago. I agree with that. I mean, I, I do find it interesting that both Rich and I, who do these two books, do, do, do a book like this, both put big science fiction images on the cover, which tells you one thing. Uh, but the actual texts 
uh, do sit that. I mean, and I guess my what I attempt to do is to mirror what I see. You know, I look mm. to reflect the field as I see it rather than filter it overly much. Um, though inevitably I will just by what I see, who I'm aware of, and everything else. Um, but it is. I mean, I do believe it's permeable. I be believe it's been permeable, permeable for a long time. Oh, in fact, it's always been permeable, but there's always been that, fi that, that desire to break it up into dis discrete camps. And yeah. the point where I lose readers, I know, is where you've got somebody who says, I want to read hard SF and I don't want to read other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I've read any number of reviews of my book that go, you know, I, you know, I, I would give this book five out of five. Uh, however, it's got all this completely unnecessary fantasy rubbish in it. So I can only give it three out of five because I only care about half the book and I could barely be bothered picking it up. And I, I think, think that's well, inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, that, oh. it's inaudible, inevitable. But it also means that when you get to think, you know, you then – what I don't like about that approach – is that then that then says that I mean like I'm I'm currently holding as I talk to you a copy of the best of the year volume two that I did. Mm -hmm. It opens with the Merchant and the Alchemist Gate by Ted Chang. Whose book does that sit in? Yeah, exactly. You know, and oh. that's if you like a talismanic kind of story for what I'm doing. Because Ted Chang thinks of himself as a science fiction writer. If you look at as a hard science fiction writer, and if you look at the structure of his stories, he's dealing with the methodology and the manner of thinking of science. You know, if, if he could be doing it in terms of Babylonian mythology, yes. but he's talking about that structure of thinking, and, yes. and he's he's very passionate about that. I think it's a, it's a perfect example of a kind of story like that. Yeah. And and to that extent, uh, and Ted Chang is, is an emblematic figure of somebody who writes stories that may look a lot like fantasy but play out as science fiction. Um, and the I mean, the, the problem you're talking about is a problem which I think was at its most dramatic at a certain point during the uh, mid to later years of the Datlow Windling Year's Best Fantasy and Horror Anthologies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I remember reading those, I used to review them every year, and thinking there are two very good anthologies here that have been basically force-mated by mm. uh, Jim Frankel, I imagine. But So, so you're reading a story, a, a really charming, moving, uh, lovely story about fairies at the foot of the garden, and the next story is a kid you know, chewing up razor blades because he got them in his Halloween candy. And I is the same person going to like both of these stories back to back? Um, probably not. It seems to me that, that that anthology sold to two fairly distinct audiences. Yeah. True, um, true. Well, I mean, yes and yeah, I think that's probably true. And I think the challenge that I, I try to set myself is not to do that so much, to find the stories that arguably will appeal to both. That, that's my goal. That's, that's my goal. Well, yeah. to, to, and that's to, my question. Uh, to dig back to the idea of science fiction readerships, fantasy readerships, horror readerships, slipstream readerships, what is the overlap? I mean, do you feel that science fiction readers, let's say, just taking your anthology for an example, that science fiction readers are likely to be more sympathetic to reading a fantasy story or that fantasy readers might be more sympathetic to seeing a science fiction story? I have to think about that because I, I guess what I have to the, the point where I'm going to step back from your question is to say the question does my head in a little bit mm -hmm. and it does my head in for one reason I've never made the separation myself you know as a reader mm -hmm. from my earliest reading days you know I read the Weird Stone of Brzezingerman alongside reading Asimov's Lucky, Lucky Star right so I was always reading science fiction and fantasy and if I made a distinction they were still ineluctably part of my reading environment. So, mm -hmm. th so this idea that there's a reader out there who's just not interested is very alien to me. It's like I can accept it intellectually, but I don't really understand it. I don't understand someone who says, I read How Clement's Mission of Gravity, and that's what I want, and that thing over there, which is, uh, I don't know, Swords Point by Ellen Kushner, is alien to me and I don't want to know. It's but you must have talked to people like this. No, I mean, like I've encountered them, but I, I, I don't explore their worldview enough, I guess, because I just find it alien and strange. I mean, do I you encounter? Uh, yeah. I, I, well, I don't know. Um, I, I guess I began as a science fiction reader and came to fantasy a little bit later. And by a little bit later, I mean, if I started reading science fiction when I was twelve, I probably was reading fantasy by the time I was seventeen. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and to me, a lot of the appeal of fantasy was the appeal of, of science fiction. I could, you know, th there are these works in between where if you read 
if you read Tolkien, for example, you're 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 clearly in a fantasy world. If you read David Lindsay's *A Voyage to Arcturus*, well, you're clearly in a fantasy world, but he got there on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. But then the spaceship was made out of crystal. So, so so I was at a certain point realized there are certain books that you simply can't categorize. Um, but but then I, I, later I met people who yeah they grew up on Hal Clement they grew up uh, subscribing to Astounding when it was still Astounding and then they continued subscribing to Analog, and uh, and 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 they t- today they want to read Charles Sheffield stories they want to read uh, Greg Benford stories maybe uh, even though both of those writers have, have, have I know varied their fiction quite a bit and they just don't want to put up with anything that looks like fantasy um, second they, they don't want to see any dragons they don't want to see any yeah. Uh, sorcerers, they they hate Harry Potter. Yeah. I've talked to a number of science fiction readers who cannot stand Harry Potter. Yeah, because it doesn't have any uh, science. It, the, the magic is there, but it's not worked out with the rigor, as far as I can yeah. tell, uh, that these these people would want. They they could they could put up with fantasy that was written by, I don't know, Sprague de Camp. Yeah, uh, they could put up with fantasy that was really disguised far future science fiction, like Jack Vance or. Um, Oh, who else? So, who's doing that today? Um, Ken Scholes. Yeah, okay. But they just don't like fantasy, which is unapologetically and uh, sure. ostentatiously fantastic in the sense that fantasy is. Yeah. And I had, by the same token, I know people. One one of the litmus tests for this, I think, is Steve Donaldson's Chronicles of Thomas Covenant because <laughs> at the time. And a lot of people have a lot of problems with that. But at a time when we were in the post-Tolkien, pre-George R.R. Martin era, Steve's books had a huge readership that read nothing else in science fiction or fantasy at all. Yeah. They just wanted to read more Thomas Covenant books. Yeah, yeah. And um, if you if you gave them Frank Herbert's Dune, they weren't interested because they didn't want to read about ecology stuff. They wanted to read about suffering, which is what Thomas Covenant does. Yeah. And... Um, so I, I, I've met over the years a number of people who have a very narrow range of reading, either in science fiction or fantasy, and don't want to move outside of it. Yeah. I, I guess I was thinking while you are saying that, and it's, it's linked. The most alien thought that I have heard articulated during this period when we've been involved in podcasting mm-hmm. came from our friends and colleagues at Galactic Suburbia. Because they st- they were talking in terms of that's not for me, uh, th- you know, that's not marketed to me, that's not intended for me, that's not you know, and I found it a really alien. I mean, I understand what they're saying. I'm not criticizing them, but I found it a really alien thing because I've never approached reading in that way, and I've never really approached the field that way. It's always been a case of, well, this particular one may not be one that I liked. And there's a f- maybe a few little tastings. So I don't really like real splatterpunk, though I've tried it. I don't really like a lot of really dark, explicit horror, but I've tried it. Uh-huh. Um, but beyond that, you know, I, I find myself sort of going, uh, gosh, um, I, I, I'm happy to try that. I like some of this. I have read and greatly enjoyed Raymond Feist and David Eddings, though not Terry Brooks. Uh <laughs> You know, I have read and greatly enjoyed epic science fiction as much as short form science fiction, hard science fiction as much as social science fiction, and I'm not trying to sort of post it as a kind or put it as a kind of gosh, I've got dreadfully, um, uh, how would you put it, you know, small c Catholic taste. It's just a case of I've never thought about something being not intended for me or not being suitable to read, and and so that's meant me. I guess that I'm kind of a a broad. To, 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 maybe I'm just flattering myself but a broad spectrum reader so when i come to the book well first of all when i come to read for the book Uh that's what i'm trying to bring to it a broad spectrum of reading now i realize before i over compliment myself we all have our cultural blinders in place as well so there's still a need to be overtly inclusive and to take into account the fact that you're not maybe going to read in this area as much or that area as much and i mean a great example right now a book which I am very uncomfortable about for various reasons is mm-hmm. the new Samuel Delaney book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you saw Paul uh, Paul DiFilippo's review of it on Locus Online. I was just looking at it uh, this afternoon. Yeah, back. I'm, I'm delighted that he reviewed it, actually. Uh, the reason I'm uncomfortable about it is I 
I'm very interested in anything that Sam Delaney does. Samuel Delaney does. Oh. I think he's a, one of the greatest writers our field's ever seen, and some of his work is some of my favorite work. Um, I am interested that this new book is a science fiction novel and has a science fiction component. I am uncomfortable and don't necessarily want to read personally the um, graphic gay porn that's part of it. And so that creates a very uncomfortable mix for me. And I'm really not sure how I want to proceed with that. And that's an example of where it hits my sensibilities. I don't know. It's it's interesting because um, I I was curious about that. I was talking to uh, Chip when you just finished it. I guess as, as a matter of fact, that was now that I think about it, one of the very last interviews that uh, that Charles Brown and I did. And we were talking with Chip at, at ReaderCon. He just finished. I guess it just turned it in. And uh, he was describing it pretty much in terms that uh, that Paul echoes in his uh, Locus Online review. And he said, there's part science fiction, it's part philosophy, and it's part gay porn. And I said, you mean erotic? And he said, no, we'll be honest, it's gay porn. That's what it's for. Mm. Uh, and he, he he knows how to write that. He knows his way around the field. I'm not particularly fascinated by that either. Um, and yet I thought his, his basic approach to it was this is what he wanted to write. He didn't necessarily think it would be something that I would want to read or that Charles would want to read. Well. Um, and, and, and I should so, say, I, I don't think he shouldn't have, and I do think the field should pay attention to it. I think so, yeah. But I don't know that I want to read it. <laughs> um, but there's a point at which I, I, to, the idea that books are not for you or not for me, the problem is um, I, I kind of have a problem with that approach in the sense that um, when I was a kid, um, there was a notion that, well, it wasn't really out there, but you kind of suspected it might be out there. That something like um, a swift tilting planet would come along, Madeline Lingle mm-hmm. would come along, and if you were thinking, "Well, I only read boys' books," I wouldn't have read that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, basically, uh, people of my generation grew up reading both the two kinds of juveniles that were really good that we liked were Heinlein juveniles and Andre Norton juveniles. Yeah. And it didn't take long after I started reading science fiction to realize that Andre Norton was not a guy. <laughs> By the way, it was her legal name. She had her name legally changed to Andre. It was not a pseudonym. Yeah. Uh, but I, I thought, well, okay, once I realized this is a woman writing, I thought, this is still a lot of fun. So, yeah, she's – and and uh, having met Andre Norton once, she knew she was writing for a young male audience. She hoped to get girls reading her books as well. But, you know, she was a very realistic uh, uh, business-like writer in the 50s who thought, okay – if adolescent boys read science fiction, I'll write them for adolescent boys. There are a lot of girl protagonists in her novels, though, or sure, girls strong sure, yeah. characters. So the problem is you can you can end up overlooking something that that is very appealing, even though you don't like the genre it's in. I know exactly what you mean. I've read absolutely brilliant Clive Barker stories. Yes. And I have no affinity at all for the kind of horror fiction that the Clive Barker school, all of the books of blood, normally is, is mm-hmm. said to represent. But he's a really good writer. He can be an excellent, brilliant writer. Oh, he is. And in fact, his uh, young adult series, the Aberrant books, are just terrific. I heard they are, yeah. Um, but with, yeah, with with Chip's book and how it reflects on what I want to read, I mean, I have to admit, if it was... I don't even know if I really want to read gay erotic. I'm very happy reading gay characters. And I'm very happy okay. for them to wander off screen and do whatever they do in the, in the privacy of their own bedrooms. Now, I should say, I don't particularly want to read straight science fiction porn either uh-huh. I mean, uh never you know so it's not but but the gay thing really the gay science fiction porn is actually that much more outside my comfort zone i confess and i'm unhappy about that but i don't really know what i can do about it uh but the, in terms of just cutting stuff out out of what i would include for my years best yeah no i, I try not to very very much so, on the basis of, in other words, you won't not exclude a book because you feel it's not for you or a story. Uh, not not a story. Well, okay. If you were publishing uh, a magazine called Really Filthy Science Fiction Porn Stories, uh huh, I'd probably skip it. The market for my book is not really filthy science fiction porn. Uh, audience, it's, it's it's going into a mainstream bookstore. It's uh, you know that kind of thing. So I would probably avoid your graphic porn science fiction fantasy stories. Or, and also the ones which would clearly violate copyright. You know, I don't really, I'm not going to read a lot of fun you know, stuff well, that I can't yeah. reprint, you know. There's no point in that. But with those caveats aside, 
and the fact that my book is a science fiction fantasy book, not a science fiction fantasy and horror book, uh, then, yeah, I just try and read as broadly as I can and then filter it back through what I enjoyed. And some of that is going to be subconscious bias, I, I acknowledge. Uh, but, you know, by and large, trying to keep it as straight a reflection as I can. Um, and I'll, I'll confess as well, that's one of the reasons why I also work with The Last Short Story on Earth People, who I mm. talk about a little but not a lot in terms of how it influences my years best. But it does absolutely influence my years best. Um, because I have five or six really intelligent readers whose opinions that I respect to bounce off my own thoughts, if you like. And so, you know, I've never had a situation where a story that's been you know, re you know, recommended by Last Short Story goes into my book because they liked mm. it and I didn't. But I've sat and I've read a book, a story, and gone, yeah, it didn't really you know, ring my bells. And then four other people go, oh, my God, this is the best story of the year. And you go, oh, wait a second, I need to go back and have a think about why they thought it was the best story of the year. Do I see the strength of their argument? Am I convinced? Do I reassess the story? And that certainly happened. Well, I mean, it, it certainly happens when somebody is reading a year's best anthology. Uh, of In every anthology, including yours, I'm sorry to say, there's always one or two stories where I was thinking, is this really the best? Yeah, okay, um, which one? Which one? In, in, in volume oh, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, I, I, come I, on, I've got a box. I have your anthology in front of me. No, right no, I'm pulling it out of the box now. That's why I sound far away officially. Oh, yeah. Pull the copy out. Pull the copy out. Which was the one that sucked, Gary? Come on. Which one sucked? I didn't say any of them sucked. Yes, you did. Thinking. Yes, you did. Come on. Let's destroy somebody's day. We can destroy somebody's reputation while we're at it. Well, it's not uh, I don't have my copy in front of me. I mean, it's been six months since I reviewed okay. that. Was it The Case I, of Death and Honey by Neil Gaiman? No, it was not The Case of Death and Honey, although The Case of Death and Honey is one of the ones where I've said it. Okay, this is, this, is, this is genre fiction, but is it fantasy or is it science fiction? It's in that genre area where it's kind of uh, on so, the edges of fantasy. So it's in a genre space. Okay. Was it the cartography? Was it The Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees by E. Love you? Okay, see, I wasn't that. Was it Tidal Forces by Kate Kiernan? Love that story. Uh -huh. Karen Fowler's Younger Women? Oh, uh, that's good. I mean, it's it's a very good, very funny story. It had a laugh-out-loud line. I love it. Okay. So, oh, yeah, problem with that. Cat Valenti's White Lines on a Green Field? Um, it's a very well-done story, a very interesting conceit. Um. Probably is not Cat Valenti's best story of the year. Well, that's probably Silently and Very Fast, you'd suggest. Yes, it is. Um, I like both of them, but I love this. I think this is actually just note perfect. I really do. I think it's one of the very best things she's ever done. Um, was it Anne Oamayello's All That Touches the Air? You don't um, remember it, do you? You don't remember it. You I don't remember that one, actually. Uh, that's, that's, I see. This is interesting. I'm paying less attention to your opinion now. Okay. What about was What We Found by Jeff Ryman? Fantastic story. I love that story. Okay. Uh, and that was one of the stories, as a matter of fact, that, that, that showed up. Um, that's one of the few stories, one of the few science fiction stories about science, about ideas about science um, that I found utterly fascinating. And I would count that, I mean, when we were talking about Ted Chang being a hard science fiction writer, nobody thinks of Jeff Ryman as being a hard science fiction writer. Yeah. But that really is a story about how science works, about how experimental yes. replication doesn't always work. It's a fascinating story. How about The Server and the Dragon by Hanu Ryan Yemi? Um, I thought that was an excellent performance of a Hanu Ryan Yemi story. <laughs> and I think of what basically I made it charming. Made. Well, the, dra the dragon in it is a metaphor. Of course. And the, and the rest of it is extremely dense, hard science fiction. That is not, that's, that's not a story I would recommend to somebody for their first science fiction story. Oh, Lord, no. That's why it's a third of the way through the book. Mm -hmm. uh, the Choice by Paul McCauley. I like that story quite a bit. Yep, I want the um, novel that's by, that, that should come from it, but yes. Well, I mean, that, <clears throat> that whole world that he's got there is absolutely fascinating. There's this sort of uh, uh, Huckleberry Finn vibe to it, really. Uh, mm. But then when it sort of vaults years into the future toward the end of the story, it's very moving. And, and it really is, does look like a compacted novel. Yeah, I will say, I, looking at this, there's not stories that I'm arguing with because, hey, I picked them, right? Uh, uh -huh. But I can see, without having thought about it this way at the time... What I have a tendency to do, and is that I'll pick short pieces to to sound a particular note in the book, to insert a flavor. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, Hanu Ryan Yemi's, which is a real hard SF story, but is also that kind of uh, quantumy kind of story, which all sort of. Yeah. And then you come to like the next story in the book, which is Malak by Peter by Peter Watts. Mm -hmm. 
which I like very much, but I like it because it really inje- injects this f- this tone of hard science fiction right into the book. And that's that, that's the in- the intent of putting it there. So essentially what you're doing is orchestrating an anthology. You're putting together, okay, we're going to put in a grace note here, and we're going to sort of have a violin solo over here. And, and a little bit you, as well. Because the Malick thing, uh, the, the, the Peter Watts thing, struck me as interesting in that it's a very cold story. It's a very mm. chilly story. It has no humans in it at all, as I recall. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a fascinating kind of idea story yeah. uh, about artificial intelligence. Again, well executed. Um, I can see how it functions in the anthology. I, not having read all the hard SF stories that you had read, is that one of the best? I don't know. It's uh, it's a very good example of what it does. But what it does is a very narrow range of stories. Uh, that are usually about robots. In this case, it's about a, a war, about about a smart weapon, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. And, yeah, well, well, I think it is actually one of the best. That's why I put it there. But also, that's what it does. And what's interesting uh, in going through this one, I, and I don't do it very often, obviously, is you sit uh. there going, okay, people say to me, this is the characteristic I see in your book, and you're sort of going, really? And I'm interested that what I chose to do was to put Nalo Hopkinson's old habits in next. Mm-hmm. which I like very much. I feel very warmly towards the story. I think it's a very good story. Uh, but it's completely different. It is all about people and about family and emotion and all that as an immediate counterpoint to the Watts story. Well, my question is, what do you think is going to happen to a reader coming off the Watts story and coming into that story? Because that seems to me the same sort of thing that used to happen when Datlow and Windling would, would, would put together a sweet sort of fantasy story. And you know, Nalo's story is essentially an evening primrose kind of story. Uh, it's, a, it's a John Collier story. It's very charming, very well done. Uh, but a classic sort of sweet fantasy following uh, an ironclad I am a weapon story. It, it's going to center you. It's going to make you feel warm. It's going to feel, you know, get, get you sort of back in that flow of the book, back into a, a, a feeling of different various emotional tones. I mean, because mm. that's sort of what, what you're doing. I mean, you, when you, once you've picked the stories and you're balancing them, it is um, emotional tones and colors and pacing and all that kind of thing. So, like, you'll drop in Malak, which is short and mm-hmm. almost, like, metallic and harsh. Yes, And then, then you've got something that's warmer and gentler and a little slower and then trips on into, quite deliberately, the K.J. Parker story, uh, Small Price to Pay for Birdsong, which I mm. do strongly think is one of the best fantasy stories of the year, but it's more an adventure kind of thing. It's, it, it's toughening up a little bit again. Well, uh, it does. It, 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 it's, 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 it's got a fully realized fantasy world, and it's got mm. a very uh, complicated... It's mm. one, of those, one of those novellas, and Parker has done this repeatedly, that you know could easily have been a 300-page novel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, none of which depends on any of the fantasy elements in it. No, they're great stor- just stories. And you it's, all- a, it's a story. It's a story which is set in a fantasy environment, but doesn't need to be really. And, and definitely a, a, a goodly chunk of Parker's fantasy could could have been historical fiction. Absolutely. Which is a whole other discussion. But and then you see you get dropped into Valley of the Girls by Kelly Link, which I assume you're not going to tell me is one of the worst stories of the year. Though obviously no, you would have picked a different Kelly Link story, wouldn't you? I would probably have picked the summer. Of, uh, yes, I would have picked the summer people. Summer people. See, I didn't pick the summer people for a couple of reasons, not the least because I didn't want to take too many stories from the one book. Yeah, well, yeah. Because I could have taken four stories easily from some steampunk. I did take the two that are in my book, but I would have taken that, and I also would have taken the Chris Rowe story, which hasn't been applauded widely enough for my attention. So maybe it was a mistake on my behalf not to include that. But this one, I mean, it's kind of. Again, it's sharp, it's dark, it's Kelly Link. It's edgy. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things this is one of the things I look for in a, in an anthology is I mean, basically I actually I knew of the summer people. I didn't read it until after I read your anthology. I finally yeah. got it. It's it's on the it's sure. on the ballot for the Shirley sure, Jackson words. That's why I assumed that you liked it better, but yeah. Well, but no, I I liked it better but part of the, but 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 basically Valley of the Girls is a story I simply had not seen before. Okay. So anytime you can show me a new Kelly Link story I didn't know about, I'm thinking that's that's nice because um, if, if so if you had the summer people I would have said yeah of course mm-hmm. and you're having this one I said oh I didn't know about that yep. so part of what a reader wants to do is discover stories they don't already know yeah and also I mean whilst I want it to be a very very good example of a short bit of fun 
I think there's a lot to be said for putting in short bits of fun. I mean, this oh, is, I agree. I mean, this is like my argument for the story you open any book with, how it should be the most inviting, the most engaging, and still representative of what you're doing in the book. And this is why Neil Gaiman ends up at the front of so many of my books, because it's his, his real talent is that warmth and that inviting tone that he puts into right. his work. That, that's, that's, I think, his great gift and what everybody responds to so well. And that's why if you put him at the front or someone like him at the front of your book, you're always going to win. Now then, yeah. see, see, for here you go into like what I would call a short bit of fun, which is The Brave Little Toaster by Cory Doctorow. I think it's uh-huh. in the space of the year's best stories. I don't think it's... I think it's the best story Cory did that year. I, I would put it in the top... 40 or 50 stories of the year and when you get down to what's he sometimes get to is like you get this core group where you're going this have to be in the book and there's no question and then there's this group of potential stories that could go into the book and you start going how's it all going to come together and flow and see to me huh. Corey gives you that again it's only three four pages long it's a small investment in terms of the book and the reader but it has a lot to offer so you know and then, of course, Michael Swanwick had one of his great years, and I, th- I think you yeah. liked the. Da- I mean, there was the two stories that you could uh, I could have used, the Dala ha- House Horse or Dala Horse, or for I have laid myself down on a hillside. Dot 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 dot. Mm. And the Dala Horse, I thought was a, it had that. Well, for start, it had the genre blend. It's that science fiction fantasy feel. It's fantasy with a science fiction explanation. Well, it begins with a fairy tale and ends up with far future science fiction and so stuff. I, I, I just liked that a lot. Would you? Is that the one you'd have knocked out? No, I uh, don't think I would have knocked that one out. I, would, I, I probably would have knocked out the Cory Doctorow because there were a couple mm-hmm. of stories in it, and the Hanu Ryanimi was like this, which I think of sometimes as performance stories, a yeah. writer doing what that writer does very sure. well. Sure. I know they do it very well, but conceptually it's not terribly innovative. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got something like, say, The Corpse Painter's Masterpiece by Mary Rickert, which I think is easily one of the year's best stories. It's clearly one of the year's best stories. And it's, again, it's in that space that, Really, only Mary Rickert and one or two other people right. occupy, so you can't really compare it to anything else. And then there's Ken Lewis, The Paper Menagerie, which I loved, but some people have criticized for being uh, manipulative, emotionally manipulative. It's sentimental. It's a sentimental it story. There's I don't no mind doubt sentimental. And uh, then, I, hmm? I thought it was charming. I thought, uh, again, it was the sort of thing. He achieves the kind of um, cautiously, I would say, I would use the term orchestrated rather than manipulative, some of the feeling in that story is the feeling you get from some of Peter Beagle's stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where he's somebody who knows how to, how, to, how, to, how to pull the strings exactly at the right moment, and the whole business with the relationship with the mother and so yeah. forth, and the whole business about ghosts and that sort of thing. Uh, it works. I mean, I don't have any problem with sentimental stories at all if they work. Mm. If they don't work, they're utter disasters. Yeah. I should probably uh, stop this here, shouldn't I, rather than go through the whole book? Well, but- we could... We could <laughs> we could go through every. We could go through all the years best. We, we could do this today. We just, could do just, this Gardner. Just mine's the, the best. Thing, mine's the best. Well, the thing that interests me about yours, and like yeah. I say, riches, which I've only seen the table of contents of, yeah. is that there seems to me a dialogue. Now we've talked many times on this podcast about Charles's idea of the dialogue of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gone on since the 20s or 30s or something. And I think what you see when you put science fiction and fantasy together in the same volume, and maybe some horror, because I know sometimes you'll include a horror story under the fantasy rubric, is that the dialogue is now a dialogue among several genres. It's not simply a science fiction dialogue. It's a science fiction and fantasy dialogue, or a science fiction and fantasy, in some cases, in horror dialogue. Well, see, I would um, argue that certainly since the 50s, it has been. Well, yeah, I, th- I think to some extent it has been. I think one of the things that's going to... Um, well, it, it, it's going to come up when we uh, start looking at I, – I, I'm, I know I'm obsessed with stuff of the 50s because it's Library of America stuff, but uh, people are going to be saying, well, you know, The Shrinking Man is in this collection. It's really a horror story. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And it's a horror story because science fiction has experimented with horror stories since its beginning. Mm-hmm. There's been – if you go back to Frankenstein, for heaven's sake, yes. science fiction and horror have been allied genres. Yeah. And it was, it was something, an artificial separation that happened to them maybe during the era of the pulp magazines. Um, science fiction and fantasy need to be in dialogue. One of the things that I still find myself a sucker for is a story that looks like it's a fantasy story and turns out to be science fiction, a la The Dale Horse by Michael Swanwick, mm-hmm. or the Ken Scholes series of novels that started with, um, yeah. what was the first one? I don't know. Oh, um, <laughs> why have I gone blank on it? Uh, with... Uh, what's it called? Lamentation. Lamentation. Lamentation was the first, yes. Which was terrific. Uh, 
and 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 yeah, and Gene Wolfe and Jack Vance do that sort of thing. Um, sometimes, very rarely, you'll see what appears to be a science fiction story that turns into a fantasy story. Yes. Um, and and that strikes me as as, fa- as as fascinating because what you've done is you've you've opened up all of these genres to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And you basically told writers you can do anything you want to, and the writer who probably has most consistently and visibly and consciously been doing this for much of his career is Swanwick. Yes. Yes. And before Swanwick, I think Zelazny did it for yes. a good his career. I think that's true. I should say, while this is fascinating, we're getting towards the end of our time, Gary. Can we, we really possibly- are. Hmm? That's astonishing. We've actually been talking for an hour without having come up with a topic yet. Well, that doesn't really surprise me. We can blather. No. Um, there is one thing we should touch on, and there really is because we are not an ungrateful group of people, are we, Gary? We're never that, no. And we've already once, well, once been honored this year with an award nomination from the uh, Hugo community. We, we, sh- we should probably have introduced this as the Hugo Award-nominated podcast, the Could yes. Street podcast. Uh, but we are now also... The Ditmar Award-nominated podcast, Gary. And the Ditmar Award is something I've become much more aware of since starting to talk with you. I mean, partly because of Locus reporting it. Every year I knew there were Ditmar Awards, and um, I never really understood uh, how it worked. And now now we're nominated for one, uh, along with some other very good podcasts. Why does Australia have so many good podcasts? Well, Could you tell the other people to stop so we can just get these awards? <laughs> that, hey, that's a great idea. Uh, I wonder if we could actually interest our, our fellow podcasters here in this country, like alternating year on, year off. Like, we'll do 2012, and you can do 2013. We'll pick up the awards that year. You can pick up the awards that, that year. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know whether they all bounced off each other. I, I think there was probably, I'm just guessing, an actual cusp in technology that suddenly made it easy. That's the first thing. That could be. Uh, I'd certainly been aware of the idea of podcasting for quite some time, uh, for you know, for se- several years before it. And when Galactic Suburbia started up, I suddenly went, "Well, it's easy to you know." It, I wonder if I could do it, you know, technically, mm-hmm. not you know, practically. And then you and I started goofing around and did what we've done for the last ninety-nine episodes, as we've done again on this ninety-ninth episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but why, I mean, some of it's the, just, to, I think it's a very, um, well, actually, I suspect it's something with being a geographically diverse, uh, socially media aware community has, has mm. had something to do with it. Uh, why they're as good as they are with Galactic Suburbia and the writer and the critic and some of the others that are around, I'm unsure. I mean, I actually had half expected, though I've not said this before, to have seen the writer and the critic on the Hugo ballot. I wouldn't have been at all surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and wouldn't be surprised should such a category continue as best fan cast to see that perpetuated. Um, and of course, then there are just straight professional podcasts as well. Well, yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, I think we come in under best fan um, acti- fan publication in any medium, which is historically actually not that I think you particularly need to know this uh, a byproduct of the merging of what was then the the Australian Media Awards and the Australian Fiction Awards. Okay. Um, and that's why it, why it exists, so it could incorporate anything that we might do. And in this instance, there are four podcasts and one print magazine, one you know, from the venerable Bruce Gillespie, one of the great Australian fans mm. of all time. So One of the other things, uh, I mean, the Dittmars are, we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast. Unfortunately, we get a lot of stories and things that most of us in the States haven't seen. Um, yeah. Uh, unless we happen to, you know, get uh, well, Twelfth Planet Press books and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that's on the that I've always looked at, and I the first thing I noticed years ago with the Dittmars when Charles was explaining to me what they were, uh, is you've got the William Atheling Award for criticism and review. And as far as I know, that's the only set of national awards that has anything quite that specific. And you've always got that's the other thing. There's a very good tradition of science fiction criticism yeah. and history. I mean, you've you've had Russell Blackford and Van Eyken and uh, Damien Broderick, uh, uh, just a very good dialogue going there. Yes. Peter Nichols. Peter Nichols, absolutely. You know, and, and, and in fact, now that I think about it, though, it didn't occur to me now, and, and shame on me, probably the thing that's maybe missing there is Peter Nichols for his contributions to the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, the new one. Uh, yeah, But, yeah, we, we, we always have had a very robust thing. I, I think that may have grown out of a period where Janine Webb and Russell Blackford and some of their colleagues were publishing a critical zine out of Australia. 
that mm-hmm. was being widely read uh, around the world within a certain part of the community. And it inspired the creation of that category when the awards were formed. I'm not that detailed, Leo, with the history of it. Uh, I think what's interested me uh, about these awards, and maybe it's a topic for another time, is the permeability of uh, publications. And by, by that, all, all I mean is that Australians tend to be aware of Australian work published in Australia and less, a work, less aware of Australian work published outside the country. Uh-huh. And, and outside of Australia, people tend to be aware of Australian work published overseas uh, in their domestic areas, I guess you'd say, and less aware of stuff published in Australia. So as a simple example, Australians are quite aware of Yellow Cake, the collection, the collection by Margot Lanigan. Americans uh-huh. are less aware because it's not been published there yet. Right. And so the Dittmars can put t- together a very credible, high-quality ballot of short stories, and I believe only one of them has been published outside of the country. Um, and, sim- and, and sometimes, well, go ahead. And, so, yeah, and, and this has always been the case. I mean, ever since I came along, that was something that I used to try and sort of champion. Why aren't we aware of stories by Australians published in Interzone and Asimov's? Because we need to mm-hmm. be in Australia lauding them as well, because they're equally a part of what we do. And try and make people aware, as we should, of the stuff that's published domestically that they may not be aware of outside this country. So find science fiction novels like The Courier's New Bicycle by Kim Westwood, which is a terrific book. Um, or some any one of the short stories. I don't really want to pick out names because then it makes them make someone comment on the other stuff. But you know, that just people aren't aware of and should be. So I mean, it's great, but it would be nice to see a, a, a better a better blend uh, over time as people become more and more available or more sorry more and more aware. And certainly, yeah, the writers here, they're, all of their, um, their their careers are on the upswing, so they'll become, hopefully become better known outside the country. And I should point out, though I probably shouldn't point out, that this probably should be known as the Tansy Rainer Roberts Memorial Ballot, because mm-hmm. I think there's almost only like two categories she's not in. Ah, that's probably true. <laughs> well, she's in novel for her... As the Shattered City. She's in novella for Julia, Julia Agrippina's Secret Family Bestery. Mm-hmm. She's in short story for The Patrician. She's in collected work for Love and Roman Punk. She's not in best artwork, but she is in best fan writer for her reviews. She's not in best fan artist, but she is in best fan publication uh, twice. Uh, not in best new talent, but she is in the Athling uh, Award for criticism and review. So very prolific award not, uh, year for her. And uh, one of those rare cases where someone really dominates the nominations. Well, congratulations to yes. Tansy then, absolutely. Well I, well, I think, yeah, just simply congratulations to everyone on the Dittmar ballot and on every single ballot out there. And I guess th- thank you to everybody. I think you join me in this. Thank you to everybody who listens to the podcast, thinks about the podcast, retweets about it, comments on it, just feels that they're part of its community without ever saying anything. You know, we're, we're all and, intimately aware. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, and, to, and to all of the listeners, as always, you are more than welcome to correct us. We count on you. We count on it, absolutely. We do. Hi, Cheryl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so on that cheery, cheery note, with a very sincere thank you, I would say I'll talk to you next week, Gary. Well, the next con- – am, am I right that the next podcast will be number 100? It will, and it you know it absolutely will. And I, I wish I could say we've got a secret plan, but right now the secret plan is to find a secret plan. So yeah. um, with that disorganized thought in mind, catch you later. We'll end our 99th podcast, and at some point we'll be at two years of this. So I'm still having fun. I enjoy I talking. Am, yes. Very much. Talk to you I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Take care. All right. Bye. Goodbye.